0: I'm Ben Horton.
1: And I'm Agnes Frimston, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House.
0: Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Undercurrents. I'm joined, as ever, by my colleague, Agnes Frimston. How are you doing, Agnes?
1: Hello, Ben. I am... Alive. How are you? I'm, alive. <laughs> yeah. I'm well. I'm well. You're well. How are you? Okay.
0: Very good. Yeah, I'm. I'm good. I'm very glad that we're that we're back. It's been a bit of a while since since the last Undercurrents. Thank you for for sticking with us, and I think we've got two really cracking interviews lined up for this week. So, who did you speak
1: to this week, then?
0: This week, I spoke to Marwa Dawadi, who is a professor at Georgetown University, about this idea of water weaponization so the use of water the sort of manipulation of access to water by different groups in the Syrian civil war in this context so so yeah so we spoke about the Assad regime and the Syrian rebels and ISIS of course and how they all attempted to control who could access water supplies during the conflict and what effect that had on the civilian population
1: interesting i know absolutely nothing about that so i'm looking forward to that was very much yeah wow that's really interesting okay and and was it cheery was it depressing was it
0: yeah i'm not sure i would describe it as cheery but it was very very interesting and it's it's also you know in in this context of um climate change and global warming and and increasingly scarce resources like water it's something that it feels like we're likely to to see more often so talking about the implications of it was really really interesting absolutely but who did you speak to
1: well i was lucky enough to speak to an old friend of the pod alistair campbell Obviously, listeners will remember from having spoken to us before on the podcast, but also having been head of communications at number 10 under the Blair Labour government. We had a chat about his new book, which is now number one bestseller on Amazon. uh, I know. And it's called Living Better, How I Learned to Survive Depression. This was just in time for World Mental Health Awareness Day, which was the Saturday that's just gone. And, yeah, it was a really interesting discussion. I mean, the book is split in between, because he he has been very vocal about his struggles with depression and trying to change the way that mental health has been addressed in the UK, but globally, I think, for a while. So the book is split between half of it is is his experiences, covering his experiences, and then the other half is him going out and trying out lots and lots of different ways other people have dealt with um, depression, from, A drugs to electro shock therapy to different forms of talking therapy and all of that sort of stuff and it's it's a lot cheerier than you would think I would say but we had a good discussion about the way that governments are dealing with mental health issues the way that employers deal with mental health issues because often employers don't deal with it very well Uh, the way that Covid has impacted mental health um, concerns around front frontline workers And just the general population So yeah, we had a long, long, cheery discussion It was very kind of Alistair to give me his time
0: Lovely, let's have a listen Okay, so today I'm delighted to be joined by Mawa Dawadi, who is an Associate Professor in the Centre for Contemporary Arab Studies at Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service. And she's the author also of a new article in International Affairs, which appears in our September issue, titled Water Weaponization in the Syrian Conflict strategies of domination and cooperation and the article is free to access until until the end of 2020 so get online and download it now. Marwa thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Thank you very much for inviting me.
0: So just to begin with a kind of definition I suppose water weaponization could you tell us a bit about what you mean by that phrase what what is water weaponization?
2: Well Absolutely. Uh, This is the title of my article and actually the topic, the main topic of it. It's the use of water or the use of the resource as a strategy that is conceived as a weapon by state and non-state actors uh, because these strategies involve the use of violence for strategic gain. So there's a strategic dimension, there is the utilisation of the resource to capture its utilisation, and there's the end purpose of gaining advantage over another actor, state or non-state actor.
0: Is this quite a well-explored phenomenon? Is it something that, that a lot of work has been done on in the past?
2: Water has been studied for two decades, three decades as a strategic resource. Clearly, this is not new. And there's been a lot of literature on that. And I'm talking about academic, but also policy literature on water as a driver of conflict or a driver of cooperation. Is it bringing states closer or further? Is it uh, triggering conflicts, et cetera? And in recent years, there's been also a whole sort of an emerging literature, which is looking at the weaponization side of it, which is as I said, the strategic use of the resource, and not only water, we're talking about also strategic resources in general, which are being weaponized by states and non-state actors involved in conflicts. And we're talking about violent conflicts, of course. But this weaponization side of things is still an emerging side of it, right? And we're talking about, and that's part of the overarching debate about is it a source of conflict or not? And there's been like counter narratives saying, actually there's been very few conflicts historically uh, over water. It has been more a source of cooperation and then others writing, you know, this is the ongoing academic and policy discussions about that. What is interesting here is the weaponization has been analyzed more in depth in recent years in relation to civil wars, mm-hmm. interstate, conflict, interstate conflicts, but also intrastate conflicts. and there, there this is the the aspect which was of interest to me when I looked at the Syrian conflict in itself.
0: Let's come to your article specifically then. and could you tell us a bit about the kind of context for the article of Zia? Yeah, you're basing this in the Syrian conflict. Could you maybe remind us, for the listener who is vaguely vaguely aware, but maybe not completely up to date with the details, what kind of time span are we talking about? And... Did you look at a particular aspect of the conflict or a particular area within Syria or give us the kind of background?
2: Absolutely. So I look at the conflict since its start, 2011 until 2019 20. I actually look back to until March this year, 2020. And we're talking about the eruption of, of a conflict which started off as a peaceful revolution where. People were mobilized in the streets asking for increased social justice, and the ensuing brutal repression by the regime has opened up the Pandora box of of a very brutal conflict with international and regional intervention as well of uh, non-Syrian actors, uh, which made it more of a a full-fledged conflict, military conflict, with also a dimension of civil war in that sense for, for control of the central government and for regime change in the end. My specific angle is about what role did water play in these state and non-state interactions? And you know, the feature of the Syrian conflict is also the emergence of very powerful non-state actors, Mm -hmm. which have taken on an international resonance, as we've seen with ISIS, for example, or the PYD, the Kurdish group. And in that sense how relevant and how strategic was water and access to water or capture of water resources in these actors' interactions. And this is where I saw the weaponization angle. Mm-hmm. And uh, interestingly, you asked me before, Ben, about what was the you know previous discussion about weaponization and possibly what do I bring to the discussion on the steering conflict? What I thought was interesting is that traditionally, there's been authors who looked at uh, the use of water as a military target and a goal. Mm-hmm within conflict, violent conflict, and also a tool. They looked at it as a tool as well. You know, how how do they use, for example, large dams or water infrastructures to further their strategic gains? Uh, What I thought was interesting was that there was also an aspect of domination and legitimacy, which took place before the eruption of the conflict, which was pursued during the conflict, and also an aspect of cooperation, which I uh, conceptualized as also part of the weaponization because it came at the expense of third actors, such as the civilian populations.
0: Just to take the first aspect of that there, then the domination angle of this, could you tell us a bit more about how that played out in the Syrian context? In what way was water a resource that could be used to dominate and, and who was being dominated,
2: I guess? Absolutely. Absolutely. So what, what I thought was very interesting, because I I studied also Syrian history and uh, for I just published a book also now about climate change and the origins Mm. of the Syrian conflict, where I saw actually it was very interesting to see how the construction of dams starting in the 60s, 70s, 80s in Syria uh, was done by the Syrian government on the basis of ideological objectives Mm. and were done also with with the objective to pursue sort of an identity project, power consolidation, and strategies of legitimation. And they were specifically, with the construction of the Tabqa Dam and the ensuing flooding of the lands around, and the displacement of population, the objective of Arabization of the northeastern part of the Syria, which is traditionally considered the breadbasket of of Syria. Hmm. That started in the 60s, 1965, with the Arab Belt, encirclement mm-hmm. plan, uh, which um, actually displaced Kurdish populations, which had migrated to Syria since the 1930s under the French mandate and later on in the early 60s. And with this Arabization, in parallel, there was a strategy of intensive irrigation, dam construction. It was clearly an identity project. We're talking about the Ba'athist regime, mm-hmm. uh, Arab nationalism, the imposition of this Arab culture and identity on these populations. Interestingly, when ISIS emerged after, shortly after the start of the Syrian conflict, it had state-building ambitions. Mm-hmm. And part of these state-building ambitions was to capture large dams. And it's not a coincidence, the Tabqa Dam became a major goal for ISIS. It captured the Tabqa Dam and it deployed the same type of strategies you know, enforcing taxes, deciding about the delivery of water, etc., in the exact same region where the previous irrigation and dam construction plans had been deployed. So I think this domination legitimacy, what is interesting to me in my research, it was a state-led, but also a non-state-led effort to exercise legitimacy towards the population mm-hmm. because ISIS also wanted to be the so-called state delivering electricity delivering water providing state like attributes despite being a non-state actor
0: it's very much a way of sort of projecting your statehood to the populations that you're coming to control
2: absolutely mm-hmm. and and we yeah, we we used to read about the capture of oil you know, infrastructures, Mm, about looting. But agriculture was a main source of revenues for ISIS in parallel to levying taxes over Mm. the population, the civilian. But the fact that they imposed the crops, the choice of crops, which the Syrian regime and government used to do, was a way to show that they were trying to also exercise the same strategies of domination vis-a-vis the civilian populations that they wanted to appeal to as well as a legitimate Sort of state-like actor, although we all know that they were not state actors.
0: And do you have a sense of how successful this strategy was? To what extent did did it actually? I mean, obviously, ISIS is now on the retreat, and it, it no longer is is sort of acting as a territorial state in in any kind of sense. But at the time, was there is there evidence that that this use of water in this way allowed them to control
2: populations? Effective in the sense that. People were happy about this control, I'm not sure about that, Mm -hmm. but it was effective in the sense that they managed to capture the Topka Dam from 2013 until 2017. Uh, At the time, they were, you know, the central authority delivering the electricity even to the capital which is interesting. And that feeds into my point about cooperation as well. Despite Mm. a violent conflict, they entered into cooperation with the central government because the Tabqa Dam is the main hydroelectrical plant in in Syria. So there was a sort of agreement with the Syrian regime, which would be that the electricity would continue to be delivered to the capital and the staff would continue to be paid by the central government in Raqqa, where the the dam was. And uh, actually... The normal services, hydroelectrical, water delivery, etc., kept on being carried out by ISIS. So there was some sort of you know continuation of mm. bureaucratic agency here, which was effective but clearly considered as illegitimate by the population and also by the regional actors, as ISIS was starting to be recognized as a terrorist organization.
0: That's fascinating. So what was in it for ISIS? to sort of enter into these agreements? Surely if they are in conflict with, with the central government, that as they were for certain parts of this period, why would they help the capital continue to, to run from a well, resources
2: point of view? I would see two strategic gains. The first one is to have status quo. I mean, they mm-hmm. captured the, the, the dam. It was a way of saying, well, if we have this agreement, you will not attack us, Right. which happened. I mean, in that sense, there was this agreement. The second point is that there was the common enemy external intervention. And in that Mm -hmm. sense, ISIS could fight off, you know, American intervention, etc. And in that sense, for the Syrian regime, that was also a strategic gain, because they benefited from ISIS actions against foreign Mm -hmm. intervention as well.
0: So now we've moved more into this kind of cooperation space, could you maybe tell us a bit more beyond just specifically that the case of of the Dam? could you tell us a bit more about this picture of cooperation and where else it occurred in, in the story that you tell?
2: Yes. Yeah, so clearly it was over the delivery of electricity, hydroelectricity, which mm-hmm. is was crucial for the capital at the time. Because if ISIS had cut off the electricity, that would have put the regime in a very difficult position. And of course, the regime has always denied having this agreement, but we have proof now that there was clearly an understanding here for between ISIS and the regime. It was also... Against the Syrian Democratic Forces, which is the Kurdish-dominated entity, which uh, is backed was backed by the United States. So there was also beyond the water dimension and the hydroelectricity uh, advantages. Is that there is a strategic gain for both ISIS and the regime through water weaponization and through that cooperation aspect of it. There's another example I would think of, which I identified in my research, which is also with the PYD, which is Mm -hmm. this Kurdish-led party, which is behind actually the autonomous region in the northeast, uh, the Rojava self-proclaimed Western Kurdistan region Mm -hmm. in the northeast of of Syria, which also entered into uh, agreements with the Syrian government Despite their differences, I mean, we know that this autonomy wouldn't have happened if there wasn't a sort of tacit agreement by the regime. It withdrew its forces. It perceived the PYD as a way of pressuring Turkey, who had taken very strong stance against the the Syrian regime. But P- the PYD um, entered into a water delivery agreement in the Qamishli area as well, agreed to deliver the water for other strategic gains. So I see also cooperation over water and hydroelectricity as a stepping stone for gaining wider or broader uh, strategic gains for both these non-state actors with the central state actor, actually.
0: Mm. Yeah, and what within that nexus of cooperation, what's the endgame for the state in in that sense. Like, what do you think the Syrian government was sort of hoping to achieve by doing this? Was it purely just that they needed the electricity? And to an extent, they were weakened. They couldn't guarantee that themselves. So this was the only way to achieve that beyond trying to seize back control militarily.
2: Right. And they were not in a position to capture the Tabqa Dam militarily Mm, mm, at the time, right? We remember mm. ISIS in 2013 until 17 was extremely powerful. Mm -hmm. It had conquered... Very large territories, all of the region there. They had very organized troops. They exercised terror against the population. They had this ideological and, you know, a structural advantage as well, in terms of also uh, foreign donations, uh, the capacity to mobilize troops, but also funds. They were looting, they were also levying taxes. So the Syrian regime which was fighting other battles elsewhere in the the country, was not in a position to recapture the dam. So it had a very strong interest in keeping the flow of electricity to the capital, uh, being its main basis in that struggle. So I see a really strong advantage here, and also possibly letting ISIS continue to try to weaken the American influence right in the region, in Iraq as well, but also in Syria. So there, I would say that that would be interesting. In terms of the PYD, clearly it's to put pressure on Turkey. And we know that since 2016 and later in 2019, with Operation Peace Spring, when when Turkey invaded the northeast of Syria, the Syrian regime had an interest in backing the Kurds, even if tacitly, or formally later on after the invasion, to weaken Turkey's occupation and and sphere of influence in the northeast. Mm, Because the Turkish invasion was clearly meant to weaken the Syrian Kurds. I wanted to
0: ask a question about the other actors in this conflict landscape that you're describing. Was there... In the course of your research, did you notice any kind of acknowledgement from the international intervention forces, the, the U.S. and, and Turkey? Did, did they have this understanding as well of how, of how water was being weaponized in this way? And did they try to involve themselves in this aspect? Of things?
2: Absolutely. That, that's, mm-hmm. a, that's a great question. The turning point for me was the capture of the large dams. Because when ISIS captured not only the Tabqa and the Tashrin Dam in in Syria, it was about to capture the Mosul Dam in Iraq. It captured the Haditha Dam in Iraq. It started threatening populations with flooding, in fact, large parts of the territory and the populations. And meaning if they get attacked by the foreign coalition, they would flood these populations. So that was a very effective threat, right? On the part of ISIS. And by capturing these dams, they sort of drew awareness internationally to the role played by the dams, but also by water. And in that sense, that triggered an international intervention to recapture the dams, to prevent ISIS from from really keeping the dam, the Mosul dam, they managed to capture it for a week only. And then it was recaptured by the American-led coalition coalition forces. In Syria, the Americans uh, backed the Syrian democratic forces, the Kurdish-led democratic forces, to recapture the Tabqa dam as well and the Teshrin Dam in 2015, and the Topka Dam in 2017. So clearly, a lot of also the the international involvement and the regional involvement was triggered by the capture of these large water infrastructures. What is interesting also is that we've seen the emergence of Turkey as the latest so-called weaponizer in that conflict, weaponizer of water in the conflict. For example, beginning in early 2020, Turkish authorities shut off water to about 500,000 people in the Hasaki governorate of Syria, which is in the Northeast. In March, 2020, it also cut off water to three refugee camps at the border with Syria in the middle of the COVID-19 crisis. So we have an added human insecurity situation Mm -hmm. that is very recent and that is not settled with the end of ISIS and the so-called settlement of the Syrian conflict, which has been anything but settled so far and I believe water will continue to be used as a weapon as we talk about post-conflict or post-conflict reconstruction plans etc.
0: Is that because of their own trouble with the Kurds? Is that what's motivating them? Turkey, Mm -hmm.
2: Turkey is very motivated by taming the Syrian Kurds. They could not accept the idea of a Kurdish autonomy in northeast Syria. And that's why people believe the regime let that autonomy happen, although it's against their sovereignty, right? The sovereignty of a Syrian entity, Arab entity. But it was a way of pressuring Turkey when Turkey took a stance against the regime. Mm. And since the proclamation of the Kurdistan, the Western Kurdistan area in Syria, Turkey has been very wary of Syrian Kurds because they sort of represent a role model for the Turkish Kurds. And then when the U.S. backed the Syrian Democratic Forces, which are Kurdish-led in mm-hmm. Syria, that was the last blow to Turkey, being yeah. also a member of NATO, et cetera. And that created a rift with the U.S. actually.
0: So obviously, the the kind of stakeholder that we've not talked about much in this conversation so far are the ones that were most affected by this, arguably, which is the civilian populations Absolutely. within within Syria. Could you speak a bit to the impact that you think that this process had on on civilian populations but also do you think that there is anything that thinking from a kind of policy implications perspective that the international community could be doing to protect the rights of civilians in these kind of areas of conflict when it comes to safeguarding resources in this way
2: so absolutely and i think the main, main victims in all of these games and power plays and interactions between state and non-state actors, and we're talking about violent non-state actors, are the civilian populations, clearly. And what we did mention as well is that during the, the Syrian conflict as well, for example, the Syrian government, when, when some populations, not necessarily armed, rebelled against the central regime after the, the Syrian you know, uprisings in 2011, One effective way for the regime to tame these populations was to cut the delivery of water. This strategy was also applied during the siege of Homs in Aleppo as well, or targeting water plants, etc. So the civilians have been the the first and foremost victims of all of these games, Uh, also by ISIS, by the PYD as well, by all of the non-state actors. And I think what policymakers are starting to realize, I think there's been international efforts to protect civilians in situations of conflict when water infrastructures are being targeted. It's to protect also the access and the use of these infrastructures. And I mentioned in my article in the the conclusion, for example, there's, for example, the uh, legal principles such as the Geneva principles, which have been drafted since a few years for the protection of large water infrastructures from state and non-state actors during but also after conflicts. And the main purpose of these principles is to protect civilian populations. So clearly, there's a lot of awareness here which should be in fact promoted in terms of policymaking in the future that when conflicts happen, violent conflicts, when civil wars happen, there should be secured access for the civilians to clean water, access to, to hydroelectricity, et cetera, and that these resources should not be used as weapons, in, as strategic weapons uh, in violent conflicts.
0: My last thing that I wanted to ask is just with an eye to the future, do you think that we're going to see this phenomenon become a, a lot more common and widespread in, in conflicts? I mean, we're always talking about the effects of climate change and global warming and an increasing kind of scarcity of basic resources like water. Do you think this is something that is going to become very much a reality of conflict in the 21st century?
2: And, and climate change is exacerbating this because if you're cutting the flow of water, if you're capturing large infrastructures, yes. in addition, in a situation of scarcity, you're making the livelihood of civilian populations even harder, right? Mm. And you're being even more effective because you know that there's water scarcity and there's drought, etc. And that's why we need legal principles. We need to have also interna- the international community enforce these legal principles to in the situation of uncertainty that we are experiencing because of climate change in addition. So clearly, I think there's been a lot of, you know, literature and research on strategic resources such as diamond, the role of diamonds, the role of minerals in civil wars and much less on the role of water in in civil wars. And now I think water is gaining, again, that strategic dimension as a potential weapon, not only as a driver of conflict of cooperation, but also in its use and the different strategies that are being used, which are in the end penalizing civilian populations like always.
0: Mawa Dawadi, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you very much for inviting me. It was a very interesting conversation. Thank you.
1: So I'm here with Alistair Campbell, who needs no introduction, obviously, to talk about his new book, Living Better, How I Learned to Survive Depression. Alistair, thank you so much for coming to join us. My pleasure. Obviously, it sounds a bit, it sounds very clear what your book is about, but would you mind giving us a brief outline of how you tell us to live better?
3: I I think it's in two parts you probably read it more recently than I have, um, <laughs> <laughs> but it's, hope it's, so. it's, yeah. it's actually in two parts. The first half really is, I guess, my mental health story, not just me personally, but other experiences of mental health and mental illness through family members in particular, a cousin who took his own life, a brother who lived with schizophrenia for pretty much all of his adult life until he died age 62, another brother with all sorts of issues and my son who's a recovering alcoholic and i want to say by the way and i'm sure you'll confirm this is not a misery memoir there's lots of kind of you know i hope it's a, it's surprisingly
1: cheery i would say for the good. for the good. nature that's of good. the content
3: <laughs> that's good so then and then a lot about my own depression and how i measure it and how i what it feels like and so forth and then the second half i call it the search for cure but it's really just an exploration of different things, different ways that different people look at their depression. Some of the science that's involved in depression, genetics, blood. I had a very interesting session inside an MRI, learning about ways of dealing with thoughts of guilt. I had my um, mild versions of ECT. And then the climax of the book for me is is a sort of a very, very, very simple Technique that I now use when I'm sort of beginning to feel a bit edgy and a bit on a plunge. So that's it I in mean, a nutshell.
1: There's also, I mean, you briefly sort of go through there, um, but you have a look at medication as well, and you say EC, but also class A drugs. And there's also an amazing chapter, if you don't mind me saying, from your wife, Fiona, on um, what your life to live with or what your life to live with, which I think mm, is. Um, bliss.
3: Headline yeah. Perfect Bliss. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Spoiler alert, the dream. No. Um, <laughs> uh, obviously, we don't want to give away the ending, but did it change your view, writing this book or researching this book, of the way that you think mental health is currently being dealt with by, um, I mean, yeah, by legislators did. or by sort of doctors? or?
3: Yeah. Did it change my view? It certainly got me thinking about it in a very different way. I, I now think about my own depression very differently to how I used to. I think Fiona does as well. She's my partner, by the way, not my wife. She hates being wife. Oh, sorry. I'm so sorry. It's, now, it's fine. It's now, it's now a verb in our household. She, she shouts, she sees the newspaper and says, look, i have been wifed again. <laughs> so I've, I think differently about my own depression. I think she thinks differently about how she handles it, in part because of some of the things that we've sort of explored together. Mm -hmm. Um, I write a lot in the book, as you know, about my relationship with my psychiatrist that I've been seeing since 2005. That's definitely changed the way I've been thinking. I think what it's confirmed to me is a a genuine worry that I have that the need for mental health services and understanding is greater than ever and with COVID is going to become even greater. Mm -hmm. And I worry that the services actually and some of the attitudes in some places are going backwards. But, yeah, there's uh, – look, listen, it's always interesting if you think you know about something to go out and test whether you know as much as you thought you did. And I learned a lot, uh, research in the book, for sure.
1: What was the thing that changed the most, you think, in your mind?
3: It was, yeah. it was actually this, for me, transformative way of looking at the way I think about my own mental health. And it's this – I actually went – the woman I, I'm talking about, I went to see her in Canada to discuss genetics because she's a genetic – Counsellor, she runs the world's only genetic psychiatric clinic. And her basic take was that no, it's not genetic. Well, that was quite a long way to go to Canada, fly all the way to Canada to find that. But then we had a discussion about, and she wouldn't mind me saying because she's she said she said publicly since that she also gets depression. And she just had this different way of thinking about it, which essentially, I describe it in detail in the book, but in a nutshell, it's basically you think of your life like a jam jar. The bottom of the jam jar is a sediment, which is your genes. The rest of the jam jar is your life sort of filling up with good stuff and bad stuff. And some of it stays in and some of it goes out. And most of the time we manage to keep it kind of, you know, on an even keel. But then sometimes we can't manage and it explodes. And she says, that's illness. And what we need to do is, is instead of thinking we can undo the contents of the jam jar, we grow the jam jar by adding layers to it, to the things that we know are good for our mental health. And I described, you know, the last chapter of that section is really that of me describing all the different layers that I had about relationships, about football, about sleep, about diet, about music, about things that I like to do, about my dog, which is, that if you can hear the dog grumbling away in the background.
1: She's a bit of an intellectual oh, celebrity, to be
3: honest. We're yeah. we, we thinking about whether she needs her own account. Um,
1: it's a slippery so, slope, but I would be very much pro it.
3: <laughs> <laughs> but then what was interesting was that when I... You know, I was right off the page when I was doing my own jam jar before I'd even got to medication and psychiatry. Mm. Whereas if you'd seen me the day before and you just said, oh, how do you look after your mental health? I'd have said medication and psychiatry.
1: Yeah. You have a look at Class A drugs as well, because there's been lots of different thoughts about how that affects people's mental health. I mean, you've famously in the past been very, very anti-drugs. Mm. Well, obviously you're anti-drugs, but I mean, did it change your, your view of these drugs
3: or, it, or the way that we regulate it? them? It did, it did, because funny enough, somebody else who's written a, uh, a book about depression, Johan Harry, he wrote a very good book about depression called Lost Connections. And he'd also written a book prior to that about the drug stray, which was already beginning to make me change the way I thought about drugs anyway. It was an incredible book because he, he went into every aspect of the drugs trade around the world and came to the conclusion that the way the world is handling drugs is just, it's, it's not helping anybody. And what was interesting about me going to see this class, a drugs experiment was just how (laughs) I was surprised at my own open-mindedness about it, put it that way. And I, I, I couldn't take, I couldn't take the drug myself because the trial period had already Expired. So what I, I did was I sat down with somebody who'd been through it, and we watched together the film of him under the effect of the drugs with the woman who who was running the experiment, a wonderful woman from Imperial called Ros Watts, and this guy Ian Rulier, he was the whose depression was off the scale, and he's one of those people who, when you meet him, and he tells you his life story, you know why it's off the scale. It's a sort of it's one of those rare cases when somebody tells you about their childhood and the abuse that he suffered and so forth, and you think, well, I'm not very surprised that you get, you know, really bad trauma and anxiety and depression and so forth. So, yeah, at the end of it, watching him talk about how he had benefited, watching him through the experiment, first of all, then watching him talk about how he benefited from it to the extent that he was several months free of depression, which he said was the first time that had ever happened, and then learning subsequently that he was back on all the old drugs because the trial had come to an end, the license had run out, and he couldn't, take, he couldn't do it anymore without it being illegal, I did sort of feel, you know, it seemed... I've got a, a, a very nice doctor who I clearly... whose opinion I respect, who's telling me matter-of-factly if Ian was allowed to carry on taking this drug, he would be free of depression. I'm thinking, you know, why can't he? Yeah.
1: I mean, you've spoken with passion in the past, in fact, previously on this podcast about your frustration at government and sort of mm. institutional attitudes, which act as a sort of sticking plaster. You know, we care about your mental health. It's good to talk. Mental health awareness campaign without actually mm. funding frontline services and the fact that they often act as a proxy for proper funding. Do yeah. you think any other countries do it better? Um, do you think any countries in particular from your research, you know, get it right?
3: I don't think anybody gets it right, but I think some countries do do it better. And I think, by the way, I think a lot of this, it's not all about government. I'll give you one example. I talk in the book about how my son Callum developed alcoholism in his early 20s, and it was you a know, pretty horrible time for the whole family. And we sent him to a place in Ireland, didn't work. He was back on the booze as the day he got out. And then a while later, he went to a different place in Scotland and Touchwood. he's not touched alcohol since. And, that and how, was,
1: Just for our listeners, how 20. old is he at
3: this point? He's 23 and he's now, he's now 30. And so I think that uh, what, what was really interesting about this place in Scotland is that, okay, he was there because of alcohol, there were other people in the UK who were there because of alcohol and drugs. But the main funding stream that was keeping that place going was the Dutch government sending their really, really, really hard case heroin addicts? Really? The people for whom? Yeah. And they were funding it. And basically, these were people, and some of them were there for months and months. Mm. And they were essentially, and the, and the attitude there, the, the thinking behind it is well, this is going to cost us quite a lot of money for that guy to send him to a nice place in Scotland mm. for six months. But it is peanuts compared with what he is going to cost the state if we don't do something and clean him up. Because if we don't do that, he's going to end up in and out of police, in and out of prison, Mm -hmm. in and out of rehab, in and out of this, that and the other. So I think that sort of thinking is, I just don't think we're at the races in terms of that kind of thinking. Now, there are other countries that do other things extraordinarily well. I mean, Matt Hancock, in the days when he was not just sort of, you know, Matt Hancock, talking about COVID and how well they were doing. When he they are doing really answer, well, by the way. They're doing very, very well. Yeah, we can agree. No, world-beating. The app, the test, truck and trays, the death rate, the economic <laughs> fallouts, all going very well. Anyway, but when, when Matt Hancock was first appointed by Theresa May, he held something called a Global Ministerial Mental Health Summit, and he asked me to mm-hmm. go and talk to him, which I did. And it was... You know, as these things go, it was quite interesting. And it was quite good. And Theresa May spoke and Prince William and Kate were there. And, you know, it sort of had a feel of this felt like something they were, they were trying to move the dial. But fun enough, the one initiative that I remember that I kind of that really made an impression on me that I can actually still remember from the day was... Not from one of the kind of, you know, advanced economies and democracies that we might think of. It was actually from the health minister from Zimbabwe. And it was an idea that cost them next to nothing. And I'll just tell you briefly what it was. And this is just the... I'm not saying, by the way, that Zimbabwe and Holland are the two countries that do this best. I'm just saying that it's not just about big money. Mm. So they have this thing called the friendship bench. And what it is, is that they train women usually quite elderly often widows living in villages and they just sit on a bench all day and people who are kind of struggling whatever it might be they just go and sit and talk to them and then they do a form of sort of social prescribing out of that they're not trained nurses they're not trained doctors but they're trained in you know a very brief rudimentary training in recognizing symptoms and also in just counseling and talking to people mm. and i think that you know often the whole—I did an interview earlier this week with Piers Morgan and Susanna Reid because ITV are doing this thing called Britain Get Talking, mm. and sometimes it is simply the act of sharing a problem with another person that will help you to solve that problem. Often, without requiring health services, often without having to go and see a doctor, let alone go to hospital, let alone have sort of years and years on medication. So, I think that we can we can look at this in all sorts of different ways and government is just part of that and so when I say is when, when you say is there a country that does it really really well the, the, the countries that I think do it better are those where there is this understanding of mental health just being a fundamental part of all of us I think New Zealand and Australia patchy but certainly at the political level, some of the regions of some of the states in Australia, I think, are doing really interesting stuff. Some of the Nordic countries are doing some really interesting stuff. But nobody's cracked it in terms of, you know, where you can actually say, well, that country is the best in the world and they're doing everything they should be doing. I just, I, I, because I think we're, civilizationally, I think we're still a long way behind where we need to be before we can actually say that there's parity between physical and mental health mental health I think in every country in the world with the possible exception of Bhutan where happiness has replaced the as the the measure by which they judge their success as a country or not I don't think there is a country that you can honestly say puts mental health at the forefront of its health policy
1: hmm. and obviously Covid is going to have had a huge impact on that too I mean sure. do you think I mean an issue has been that So much of healthcare across the world has had to freeze and focus on COVID, obviously, like, automatically. I mean, it has affected research when it comes to cancers, kidney diseases, everything, mental health, too. The other issue is sort of the WHO has highlighted the massive urgent need to invest in mental health services Mm. in the context of COVID. And frontline healthcare workers as well has been identified as a particular risk of psychological distress. I mean, what role do you think the the WHO can effectively do? Because, again, it's really easy to say, let's focus on mental health. Mental health is really important. But what concrete steps can organisations like that do? Because, as you say, it isn't just about government government intervention. Yeah.
3: I mean, the, 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 they're obvious. Look, the WHO is, the, the, the key is in the word O. Oh, it's an organisation and they, yeah. they organise. But they can provide leadership. And for all the kind of bombast and bluster against them from people like Trump, I think they are, they are you know, recognised as as having a, a, a constructive and positive role in this field. So if they, if they say that they think mental health is going to become a much greater problem emerging from COVID, then I think governments, most reasonable governments, can and do listen to that. Closer to home, the Royal College of Psychiatrists have said that they think COVID, they, they've referred to mental illness as being the second pandemic. And you mentioned one of the areas, that's the frontline workers. But if you think about children who were you know working hard for exams that they couldn't take students now who've gone to university and find actually i think you know they might as well be in prison some of them and they're certainly not going to get the university experience that they were led to believe they would when they were growing up and going through school and then you think about the recession that's coming down the track and the economic implications of that and the mental health implications of that i've just been working today on a piece for tortoise and i've recalled a conversation i had with alan milburn former Labour health minister when, you know, when he was an MP in the North East and during the financial crisis, I remember him saying that virtually every time he got a train north or south, there was a delay because there was a body on the line. Well, I'm not saying every single suicide is related to the economy, but often they are. And so when you know that is coming down the track, governments have a responsibility to, I think, to plan for that. And I found something very alarming the other day when it was emerged with lots of freedom of information requests that Matt Hancock, the health secretary in the UK, had not had a single meeting with a mental health organisation in the first three months of lockdown. Well, these are organisations that don't just sort of, you know, rattle their tins and campaign and get people to run marathons. These are people who run services that help the government. And so I think, you know, we've got to change the whole lens through which we look at mental illness. Government is a massive part of that, but it's not the only part. I think businesses, employers are incredibly important and businesses as employers understanding that these are particularly difficult times for people who may be struggling and they have a responsibility towards those people. And then also I think that the other thing, I'm glad you thought it was a sort of cheery book in some ways, I think the other thing that I've tried to do in that is to, is to say that there is an awful lot that we can do for ourselves and for each other. I think that what I, what I end up concluding in a way is that I don't really trust the government to deliver the mental health services we need. Some employers are good, but some are less good. Ultimately, there's an awful lot we can do for ourselves and for each other. And that's kind of one of the things I want to focus on too.
1: So, one of the things that struck me about your book, I hope you don't mind me saying this, is obviously you have a very supportive and um, long term partner, but you also have a series of very close male friendships. Because I think a lot of conversations around mental health, especially around male mental health, you know, getting men to talk, often means that the people in their life that are taking on the emotional responsibility of trying to help them are women. And I think the and women tend to do that for other women too, but I think the sort of personal response to mental health can weigh quite heavily on on the female gender or sex, rather. Um, I mean, how can blokes take a bit more responsibility for their male friends too, if that makes sense? You know, not just let
3: yeah
1: it, it be the woman's job in a friendship or in a relationship.
3: Yeah. I think it's back to this point that I made earlier about you know how how we've developed as a civilization. I mean, these these are ingrained. Attitudes and societal roles that have developed over millennia, and therefore they're not necessarily going to change quickly. But there's no doubt that they are changing. And mm-hmm. I know people where the man in a in a heterosexual couple where the man is very much looking after a woman who's really struggling. But I think you're right in general. I think a lot of this does fall on on, on mothers and sisters and, mm-hmm. and 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 female friends. And I think that the answer to your question, what can what can blokes do, is actually to understand that we all benefit if we feel we can be as open about our mental health as we are about our physical health. And we feel there's no shame or stigma attached to that. Now, we're a long way away from that. But I, one of the reasons I talk about this, one of the reasons I've written a book about it, one of the reasons I make films about it, is I, you know, I've got enough self-awareness to know that I have an image of somebody who's quite robust and quite tough and kind of seen as somebody who you know kicks ass to get things done and so forth and i think having that as an image if you like but being able to say i've done that as well as struggling psychologically and sometimes psychiatrically at times to keep my head in a even vaguely sane place and having very low depressions and sometimes quite dangerously high manic spells. I hope that helps people to think, well, if he can talk about it, I don't really see why I shouldn't. Now, I think that in a way, it's easy for me to say that I've got a lot of opportunities. I don't have massive financial concerns. I've got a nice family, as you say. I've got a lot going for me. It's a lot harder if you're kind of worried about your next promotion, or you're worried about your next job interview, and if they're going to ask you whether you've, you know, you're in good health or whatever it might be. But I just think we've got to we've got to get to a point where we all kind of jump in this together, and we just think, you know what? For centuries, we've been held back by this idea that somehow there's something so wrong about mental illness that you can't talk about it. That's, and I know people, by the way, who are who will tell you that the, what they feel is the stigma that attaches to them because they have a mental health condition, they find it worse than actually the condition itself. Last question for you. Obviously. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah.
1: I mean, as you were saying just then, you know, you have a reputation for having been a presence and getting things done. And now you talk about mental health really openly, which is amazing. I mean, do you think we've we've seen the way Trump has reacted to having? had covid um or in fact boris johnson do you think we're any closer to any senior politician being very open about their own struggles with mental health because we often i think when it comes to politicians it comes out in the form of addictions potentially and um, you know yeah. alcoholism or sex addiction or um drug addiction i think politicians feel like they could be open about those things or more open about those things than they could have been in the past. But I cannot I think you are the most senior political figure in the UK who talks about mental health. I can't name anybody else. I mean, mm. how far off do you think we are? And why do you think it feels like such a struggle?
3: Well it's interesting you mentioned the the addiction issue. So I, I write in the book about my friendship with Charles Kennedy, who Everybody in Westminster knew that he was, you know, struggling with alcohol, but he didn't want to say anything publicly because he was worried about what the press would do, what his constituents would think. You know, I understand these are really big kind of personal decisions, but you're you're right about the kind of paucity in a way. I remember a few years ago, there was a debate in Parliament about mental health, and there was this kind of, you know, wow, isn't that amazing? Because four MPs talked about having had, you know, some form of depression. Well, look, there's way more than that, I've got it. There is funny enough, there is a prime minister, former Prime Minister of Norway who actually had really, really bad depression. It's called Bondovic, and he had, he had really bad depression. And he actually went to the cabinet and said, look, I'm really struggling. I'm going to stand down. I can't do the job. And there was a cabinet rebellion against him standing down. And they basically insisted that he have a deputy who stood in. He took some time off. He went away and got some treatment. While he was off, his poll ratings were the highest of any Libra in Europe. Uh, <laughs> and, and so, and then interestingly, during, during lockdown, because I, I, I don't even know this, but the book was meant to come out in May and it was delayed because of the, the lockdown. And so, to keep myself busy, one of the things I did was I did some interviews with people about how they were coping in lockdown. And Nicola Sturgeon was one of them. And she said actually she'd been, she'd been struggling dealing with the, de- the, the concept, the issue of death all the time. David Lammy, talked to he said that actually he'd had several bouts of depression in his in the past including having to take medication and Sadiq Khan as well Sadiq Khan talked about how he actually had you know been 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 struggling a bit so
1: sorry I I take it back because Ruth Davidson when she resigned alluded to the fact that it was taking a toll on her mental health
3: yeah yeah you haven't had a Trump certainly I'm not aware of a a modern British Prime Minister, but don't forget, you know, Winston Churchill, the inventor of the yeah. phrase black dog. Yeah. Um, I, what I don't do, I talk to lots of politicians about this. If I was talking to one earlier, he was actually phoned me up and said he was really struggling. And I, what I never say to people is, look, I think you should really be open about this. I think it'd be the right thing to do. But what I do say is, I have never, ever, ever regretted being open. And I feel it, I feel therapeutically. Better for being open, and and because I think it, it it just deals with that idea that you shouldn't talk about it. And I think I've got no doubt at all. If again I'm in a different position, I'm not an MP, I'm not standing for election, and I can imagine why an MP might think, oh, my opponents would use it against me. But I think if they did, provided you were doing your job, I think that would work against them, not against you. So well, I, I hope think it's so. yeah. But I, I, I think the there are people. You know, another I, I a guy quote in the book, um, Jeff Gallup, Prime Minister of Western Australia. He resigned because yeah. he just found he couldn't, he couldn't do the job. But and since he's gone, he's gone on to do other stuff, and he's been amazingly successful at that. So I think we will get there. But I, it's taken a hell of a lot longer than it ought to. Mm. Well.
1: Alistair, thank you so much. I've actually, I lied. I have one last question, but everybody should buy Living Better, How I Learned to Survive Depression. It's out now and hold back.
3: Don't forget the ebook
1: book and audible. On. Yeah, which you read, because <laughs> um, I've also been listening to your dulcet tones. Great. Okay. Um, so final question. If you had a magic wand and endless resources, this is a magical situation. What one thing would you... What one policy or one investment would you try and put into mental health services that you think would make a huge change?
3: Uh, Well, I'm only allowed one thing.
1: Yeah, but you have endless resources for that one thing.
3: Okay. I would put mental health support workers in every classroom in the school, in every school Mm -hmm. and every college. And if I'm allowed to extend that, then I would also have more mental health support in prisons mm-hmm. uh, because I think an awful lot of the people who are in prison are actually there because they're mentally ill.
1: Yeah.
3: So I think that's the one we'll thing I would addiction do. addiction
1: issues, I think.
3: Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Sorry. So I think, that's, I think that's what I would do. I would, I, would, I would say let's have, you know, a bit like we had, you know, classroom assistance, one of the many brilliant things that the new Labour government did. Um, I think that a similar model people focus on mental health would be a real breakthrough moment
1: well that's a cheery note to end on thank you so much that's great my pleasure Um, enjoyed it lovely to speak to you and speak to you soon
0: well two really really fascinating interviews there Agnes, I thought your conversation with Alistair Campbell was was so interesting, and I, I think it's a topic that maybe is kind of under-acknowledged in the sort of political world, but I mean, I can't really think of a more stressful profession than, than working in politics at a time, you know, during the kind of situation that we're finding ourselves in with COVID-19 and, and economic collapse and things, and, and really people acknowledging and, and working out how to deal with mental health challenges around that is super important
1: yeah and I think um, the thing he was most generous on is you know because he's spoken with passion including you know previously on undercurrent to you ben, about his frustration at governments and institutional sort of attitudes with you know the we care about your mental health it's it's good to talk mental health awareness mm. elements which you know often act as a proxy for proper funding for mental health services I thought it was really interesting on that anyway yeah on that note, that's all we've, we've got time for today. But we'll be back in the next couple of weeks with some more interviews. In the meantime...
0: I'm Bed Horson.
1: And I'm Agnes Ripson. And you've been listening to Undercurrents.